Well, I'll tell you what, it's good to be back. It's a good sign when you're gone for two weeks and you miss the church you go to. I missed my church. Um, let me tell you a little bit about where we were at. It felt like over the last couple of weeks, it was like I had to grow up. Um, first of all, our oldest, our daughter, was married. So she married a guy from Germany. They're training to be missionaries um, in the Muslim world. And so we did a wedding here in Billings, but because his family, not, not all of them and friends could come over, we did a second wedding in Germany. And so that was quite the experience. It's rural Germany. And I've got to show you a picture. We, um, they had purchased some piglets and had fed them and raised them all spring and summer. And then we consumed them at the wedding. And this is what they put on my daughter and new son-in-law's wedding table. You're looking at like, what is that thing in front of them, that kind of crispy looking thing? Well, that is one of the pig's heads. And so it was this tradition that you give the bride and groom the pig's head with little carrots in the eye sockets and a little carrot sticking out of his mouth. And I can't tell you how proud I was of my daughter. She didn't go, "Ah." she just like, all right, what are we supposed to do with that? And her new husband leans over and says, the cheeks are the finest delicacy, so we have to eat the cheeks of the pig. And this girl, this little Montana girl, she takes her fork and dives in and eats the cheek off of the pig sitting on the table. And I thought, that's my girl right there. She can be a missionary because she can sit at the wedding table with a pig's head. You know, anything's possible now. And then after that, our oldest son graduated from Navy boot camp in Chicago. And so I got a picture of him. And uh, that was just a lot of fun. We're really proud of him with his little brother. And yeah, it's, it's great. We're glad he's serving our country. Yeah. And uh, boy, he's got a long journey ahead of him. But my favorite line was, how was boot camp? He said, it was terrible. I met a guy who spent weeks in prison. He said, prison is way better. The food's better and you have more free time. So uh, that was his experience in boot camp, but now he's in the Navy for many years to come. He's enjoying it more now that boot camp's over. So we're in this series we're calling Radical Grace, right? And uh, grace, especially when you look at the life of Jesus, there's four books that chronicle the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one of the things that was so disturbing to people who actually interacted with Jesus was they felt like the way he treated people was scandalous, It just wasn't fair that Jesus would love people that they had determined those people are too far gone. Those people have done too much. They're outside of the scope of who God can accept and who God can love. And over and over in those books that record the life of Jesus, Jesus is saying, no, actually, I am choosing to love them. I'm choosing to build a relationship with them. And they say, but they they haven't done life right. And here's the deal. They, like we, tend to believe that God's love is merit-based. Okay, that grace, this beautiful thing called grace, which is hard to define, his love, acceptance, his forgiveness, his unmerited favor, that grace is merit-based, meaning it's transactional. I do this, if I do the right things, then God rewards me with acceptance or love or forgiveness. But what Jesus would tell people, what the Bible speaks of, is that grace is not merit-based. There's nothing I can do to earn or achieve God's love. It's not merit-based. Let me give you um, an example of when you looked at that picture of my son's graduation, you thought, oh, Nate must have been there. But Nate wasn't there. So 
in order to get, the, the wedding was planned beforehand, and then my son's graduation, we didn't know when it would be. So in order to get from Germany to Chicago to make my son's graduation, uh, we, the only way we could get there is if we took a train to Paris, and we were going to have a six-hour layover in Paris, and then we'd fly from Paris to Chicago. So we'd never been to Paris. Like, we just haven't traveled like that. So I'm like, hey, honey, guess what? I love you so much, I'm taking you to Paris for five hours. And um, so we, but we've got backpacks, we didn't check any luggage, and we get to Paris, we've got five hours. So I find these storage lockers, I put our, sto- our stuff in the storage lockers, and we've got five hours. And it is like, how fast can you walk through the Louvre? How far is the Eiffel Tower? Let's run, quicker, honey, we're not going to see it all. So we just, you know, pound Paris. And now it's time for us to go back up north. It's about an hour and 20-minute train ride in order to catch our plane. And I get to our luggage place, and because I don't read French, it closed at 10 p.m. And our luggage is locked away. So I send Jenny up there, and I say, in the morning, I'll get both of our bags. I'll meet you at the airport. And I get, you know, it's working out. I've got my backpack. I've got her backpack. And I am on the most crowded train I've ever been on to get to the airport to catch this flight. And nobody really, you know, everybody kind of head down in big cities. Like, they don't want to talk. But these three guys came up, and they were just, like, super friendly. And I'm holding backpacks. And I I look like the ultimate tourist, right? And they're just friendly. I'm like, man, those guys were friendly. They got off the stop right before the airport. And the minute I step out of the train at the airport, my phone starts to ring. And it's fraud alerts. And I reach down. I have a zippered pocket where I kept my passport, credit cards, cash, ID and it is unzipped and empty and I'm like those guys were not as friendly as I thought they were and so in, in a matter of eight minutes you know they've tr- tried to charge over 20, like eighteen nineteen thousand dollars um to, and I'm like what do I do now our plane leaves in an hour and a half I look at my wife and I said honey I'm basically Jason Bourne right now <laughs> I have no identity like none they're not going to let me on the plane. And so I send her on the plane to go to our son's graduation. I ride the train back down. And I, I guess I go to the American embassy. And it's confusing. And I finally get to the embassy. I've got my bag. And I, maybe it's too many movies, but I'm frustrated. And I come up and I come to the guard and I go, I'm an American citizen. And he goes, yeah? <laughs> you know, like I'm running from something. Like, I, I guess I don't know what to say at an embassy. I'm like... I know everything's stolen. He said, well, they can help you inside, but you can't come in with your bag. I'm like, well, what do I do with my bag? He goes, the Mexican embassy will take it. <laughs> All right. So I walk three quarters of a mile to the Mexican embassy, check it in. And then the Mexican embassy gives me this, I have to wear a chain and this big bag with the Mexican badge with the Mexican flag. And now I go back to the American embassy with a Mexican flag on me. <laughs> and they let me in. And here's, I needed, I needed grace. See, this is grace. I get to this agent eventually, and I say, I have no proof that I am who I say I am. But I want to go back to Montana, right? (laughs) Please, please, and my son's graduating. And it was amazing. I mean, it was like the interview was, where was your grandmother born? I'm like, uh, in the United States? Yeah, like, it's not good enough. But after a period of time, they had grace. They gave me a temporary passport. And I finally got to miss my son's graduation. Um, but, but I got home because somebody had grace on me. We all need, we need grace. 
desperately. I want to read a story that's very, very old. It's about ancient Israel. And here are the characters involved. There's, there's a, a man named Saul that we'll read about, and he's the first king of Israel. And he's a big, powerful man, but he ends up, he ends up just, his ego gets to him, and, and God says, you can't be king anymore. But Saul has a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan is the prince. He should be king eventually. And then Jonathan has a son whose name is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, okay? And then there's another character, so that is, that is grandfather, that is father, and that is son. There's another character, and his name is David. And David says, listen, these guys can't be king. I am choosing David to be king. And Saul was so angry. He tried for years, for about two decades, to kill David, to try to assassinate him. But eventually David becomes king. And this whole side of the family apparently is dead, and it grieves David. So I want to read this passage. We're going to read about the grandson. His name is Mephibosheth. I'm going to read about a form of radical grace that he experiences. Here's the history of Mephibosheth. It's from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 4. Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan, his grandfather and father, had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. She didn't flee because she was afraid of the Philistines, the, the invading army. She fled because she knew this. This Mephibosheth, he's now the rightful heir to the throne. And in the ancient world, what a new king would do is he'd kill any competition. It happened in Rome and Greece and Babylon. Is The new king would kill everybody who might have had a claim to the throne to solidify his position. But as she hurried away... She dropped him, and he became crippled. And when the child's nurse heard the news, oh, he became crippled. So that, that's, his, that's his story. He's five years old, and something happens to him, a traumatic event that he has, he has no say in. It just, it's an experience that now impacts him for the rest of his life. I think a lot of us in the room would say, I, I have my own Mephibosheth moment. Something happened to me, a form of rejection, a statement that was spoken that is echoed in my mind and it's lodged in itself deep inside of my heart and I've tried to fight to get through it. It's, it's an abandonment. It's a family of origin issue. I was dropped and it's impacted me for all of my life. What's your Mephibosheth moment? What is it that's happened to you that's impacted who you are and how you function? Now, I want to pick up the story a few chapters later. This is uh, David, as he's now king. One day, David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And he summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are, are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Zebra replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Well, where is he? The king asked. In Lodabar, Zeba told him. Now, interesting, we, we'd miss this, but this Hebrew word Lodabar, you know what it means? It means a place of no bread. 
It's an actual region that was, it, there, it's just scarcity. Things couldn't grow. It was where impoverished people lived. It was where you never had enough. And so Ziba says, oh yeah, there's one son, but he lives in that place, that place of no bread, that place he's been hiding. It was like witness protection because they're afraid that if David ever found out that Mephibosheth is alive, he'd be, he'd be murdered at the home of Makir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Makir's home, hiding in Lodabar in the house of Makir. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Shibbetheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show kindness to a dead dog like me? All these years of hiding had made Mephibosheth think of himself as worthless. Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. And you and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him, to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant. I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth, it regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Like one of the king's own sons. I think there's a couple of ways that we can look at this ancient text. We can look at it and say, hey, we want to be like David, which is a legitimate and beautiful way of looking at it. We want to find people on the outskirts and offer them love and offer them things that maybe they don't deserve. But I'd like to challenge us today. Could we look at this from the perspective of Mephibosheth, that you are, that I am, we identify with Mephibosheth, that we all have issues and we all need God's grace. Here's the first thing I'd like to say. We all limp. We all limp. So for Mephibosheth, his wound is obvious. It happens when he's five years old. He's now incapacitated. His limp, his, his challenge is physical. But it's not just physical, is it? What does he say when David finds him? He says, I'm your servant, but why would you show kindness to a dead dog like me? Dead dog like me. In the ancient world, dogs weren't pets. Anybody ever been to like, uh, oh, just another part of the world, developing part of the world like Mexico or, or Asia? Dogs, I mean, we, we like trim our dogs' toenails, right? The rest of the world, they kick their dogs. Like, you're there to eat scraps. And in the ancient world, there was no worse thing than to be considered a dead dog, right? And somehow Mephibosheth... Over all these years of hiding, all these years of wondering, why did this happen to me? I can't walk. I can't contribute. If I'm ever found, I'll be killed. Why am I not king? Somehow his identity become this. I'm a dead dog. I have nothing of value. 
I'm purposeless. Every one of us limps in one way or another. Some of us, we've got very real physical ailments that challenge us. And they identify us and we struggle with them every day. I understand that. Everyone in the room has a limp. That's part of what this church is based on. It's a place where it's okay not to be okay. It's a place where we understand we're broken and we need help. But some of our limps, they're much easier to hide. We camouflage them. Some of our limps are emotional because we're looking for approval that we never received at home. So many men I know about my age are still trying to get dad to say, I'm proud of you. So many young women, older women I know, are still trying to get dad or mom to say, I love you. We have these wounds, we have these emptiness, we, uh, we, we all limp and we disguise them. My limp is different than your limp and I can hide my limp, but the reality is that every one of us is broken. And part of what the Bible says, and this is not culturally popular, I understand that. Culturally, we're told this, that human beings are basically good. We're just basically good. And if you put them in the right environment, they'll thrive and they'll do beautiful things. I wish that were true. Human beings are capable of beautiful things, understood. But the Bible says this, that you and I have an incurable disease. And it's sin. And it's rebellion against God. And it is selfishness. That every one of us, the Bible calls it depravity. We're broken inside. We can never please God. We are by our nature, by our nature, in need of help. So you limp. I limp. Some of our limps are very obvious. Some of us, we haven't even identified what is broken in us. But what we all share is this, a desperate need for someone to save us. We all have a desperate need for radical grace. You limp, I limp. I had a friend, I spent a lot of years with him. His name is Jamie. And uh, Jamie's just one of those really good guys. Really good guys. In fact, I talked to him on the phone not long ago. He's the guy, you ever have a friend that when you move, you call him? Because he'll actually come. Everybody else is going to their grandmother's birthday party when it's time to move. Like, oh, really? Yeah, your grandma has so many birthday parties. Um, he'd just show up. He was just a good guy. And so he would ask questions about God, and we would explore this. He was spiritually unresolved. But here was his big hang-up. He would say this, Nate, I don't think I need a Savior. I'm a really good guy. And it was really hard to argue with that because he was a good guy. He was moral. He was kind. He was faithful to his friends. And I never had a way to push back on that. And then he got married, and he asked me. I got to be a part of their wedding. And about three years after they got married, we were talking about the same thing. He goes, Nate, I, I get it, like, but I don't need a Savior. And I got this idea. So I said, hey, can I ask your wife if you need a Savior? And he said, sure. She'll tell you I'm great. So I find his wife, and I go, hey, does Jamie need, does he need something? She goes, I don't know what he needs, but he needs something. Right? <laughs> so I went back to him. I go, listen, buddy, your wife says you need something. And I think I know what that something is. Because nobody is good enough. We all limp. Point number two. The king pursues us. We're pursued by the king. Isn't it interesting that in this story, Mephibosheth and all these years of hiding and Lodabar, the place of no bread, 
He doesn't eventually get the courage to say, maybe, maybe I'll find my way to the king. Maybe I'll beg for mercy. Maybe I'll say, hey, you, you knew my father. You knew my grandfather. Could you please have mercy on me? No, he's going to spend all of his life hiding because he's overcome by fear. And he's convinced that he's nothing of value. He's a dead dog. The story is this, is that the king goes to find Mephibosheth. I'll tell you, that is the story of the New Testament. It's the story of God in general. That we as human beings will never be able to find our way to God. With all of the philosophies and all the religions and all the temples and all the things that we build and all of our moral achievements, we're always trying to find the king. We're always trying to find God. And the point of the Bible is this. The point of my brokenness is this. We can't find him. We can't achieve him. But the king pursues us. Jesus came to earth because God said, the king's going to them. And he comes as a vulnerable infant. And he experiences everything it means to be human. Disappointment and joy and hurt and pain and ecstasy. He experiences it all. And then he says, because the king pursues, I'll die in their place. I'll heal the rift. I'll make things right between humanity and God. See, the beauty of God is it's not about your spiritual journey and your sojourn and you getting everything right and morally put together. It's the king pursuing you. See, radical grace is not about achieving. It's not merit-based. It's about receiving. Radical grace is not about achieving. It is about receiving. God finds us. Point number three. We may think that we're broken and useless, but God says that we're chosen and invited. Like Mephibosheth, we may self-identify as, hey, I'm broken. His identity is now connected with his physical challenges. He says, I'm, I'm a dead dog. I have nothing to offer. It's that thing that leaked into your head, that thing, that, that, that phrase where you begin to lose confidence and believe things about yourself and about God that were untrue. And he says, I, I've got nothing to offer you. But here's, here's what David says. You're invited. You're chosen. I'm making the choice to receive you. See, at the king's table, there's room for everybody. Every type of dysfunction you can imagine. It's a beautiful picture of the church. It's going to be a beautiful picture of heaven around the table of the king. It's going to be people like me and people like you. There's going to be people from every walk of life and every color of skin. One of the most, oh, interesting experiences we had is the day after my, my daughter's wedding, uh, we were really close to Nuremberg, and we went and visited. Nuremberg is, um, it's been a fascinating place because it's the historical seat of different, multiple, two different German empires. 
So when Adolf Hitler came into power, he went back to Nuremberg, and he decided this will be the hub of, of the Third Reich. So we actually were able to go to this building. Hitler was going to plan multiple different places. He has a place where he landed his Zeppelin, 150,000 troops and spectators would fit there. This was going to be his government building. It was never finished. And he had the beginnings, the foundation of a stadium that would have held 400,000 people. So this is where his, his rallies were. This building now has been turned into a museum. And I've always been, you know, we're all deeply disturbed by something like World War II. It's not that far in, the history, in our history, and how could that happen? This, this was interesting because it helped me understand the how, the how. So the Germans have turned it into this museum. It talks about the progression of the Third Reich. Here's, here's the line that was crossed. There's an arrogance that says that one group of people are superior to another group of people. And then a descending value of human life. So, of course, there are people with physical limitations like Mephibosheth. Well, they were lower. There are people with lower IQ. There are people of certain skin color, of ethnic background. And they're less worthy than this group. Here's the message of the gospel. Here's the message of this passage. That God looks at humanity and regardless of IQ, regardless of capacity, ability, ethnic background, everybody has worth. And there is room at the table. He invites everyone to the table. There's no descending order. He doesn't look at the Rhodes Scholar and look at the third grade dropout and see a difference. His love is complete and total, and the invitation works for all. We may think we're broken and useless, but God says we're chosen and invited. Fourthly, it's very simple, but we cannot earn any of this. We can't earn any of this. Mephibosheth had nothing to give. He had nothing to give in exchange. He, he couldn't be a warrior for David. He couldn't be one of his advisors. This is a man, he didn't have proper etiquette. He didn't know anything. He'd been in hiding and isolation. And the point of grace is this. It's a gift. It's not merit-based. It's not transactional. It's not Mephibosheth saying, well, what if I do these things for you? And then David says, yeah, if you can accomplish that, you'll sit at my table. It's just purely and simple gift. Here's, here's my gift to you, Mephibosheth. The historical land that your grandfather owned goes back to you. And here's my gift. Every day you're going to join me at my table. And there's nothing that you've done to earn this. And for all of us who are achievement oriented, this is so difficult because we're not, we're not good at experiencing gifts. We want to do something in return. Grace is a gift. Gift. You cannot earn it. You cannot earn more of God's love than exists for you right now. Lastly, there's an invitation to the table. You, you and I are invited. Come to the table. Imagine that this is the seat for you. 
Now, I think there are different people in the room, of course. Some of us, we've been following Jesus for a while, and how do we deal with this passage? How do we deal with the radical nature of grace? Let's say this. God is not looking for my contribution. God is not inviting me to to the table because I have so much to contribute. He is simply looking for my heart. That I would surrender to him. So many people who, who do desire to serve God, here's, here's our tendency, is we tend to want to hide our limbs, right? And we tend to want to earn our spot. Like, earn our spot at the table, like, okay, what else do I do? And I've got to learn the right etiquette, and I've got to learn how to sit and talk and be in the king's presence. And if, if I do everything right, I'll get a spot at the table. Here's the beauty of grace. You always, already have a, a placard with your name at the tailor. And there's nothing that you have done to achieve that. It is a gift of God, one on the cross through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so for all of you who believe, drag your limping, broken bodies and sit at the table. And you may be saying, I'm a dead dog. Do you know what's in me? Do you know where I've been? Do you know what I've done? And the king says, doesn't matter. This is a gift. How do you respond? You respond with gratitude and repentance. I can't believe there's a spot at the table for someone like me. Would it make you humble? Those of you who are following Jesus, Will you always be humble every day when you pull out your chair and say, I'm here with the king. I'm so grateful. Now, there's some of us who we're not sure. We're not sure. We're not sure what we believe. We're spiritually unresolved. And I understand that. But here's what I want to tell you. There is no limitation in your life that is an obstacle to God's love. There is no limitation in your life that is an obstacle to God's love. Remember, he's not looking for your contribution. He's looking for your heart. But you may say, but there are so many things. I have so many doubts. I'm not sure what I believe. I've made so many mistakes. I've been told all these other things about God. Listen, none of that is a limitation to his love for you. Come to the table. You have a seat. Your name is written down. It's your seat. And you didn't do a thing to earn it. Salvation is a gift of God. It's radical grace. And it's something you simply receive. You do not, I do not achieve it. Limp your way to the table.